Hello and welcome to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase.News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitoring. So hello, this is the final part of our three-part series on Black Wednesday, the crisis that led to Sterling's devaluation and exit from Europe's exchange rate mechanism 30 years ago. In the last episode, we dealt with the day itself and we got to the point where the Chancellor, Norman Lamont, had run up the white flag. The UK suspended its membership of the ERM and the pound slumped. We talked a bit about the shambolic way the day ended with no one telling the country, or indeed the markets, what was going on. Nobody really knew what could happen next. Could we go back into the ERM at a lower rate, or are we out for good? And unsurprisingly, the press is unimpressed. And this is when Sun editor Kelvin McKenzie tells John Major, who is unwise enough to phone him up, that evening, that he has an enormous bucket of shit on his desk that he's going to pour over Major's head the following morning, prompting the immortal reply, Oh, you are a wag, Kelvin. <laughs> but what was the mood like in the Telegraph that evening? Well, not quite the same as the uh, <laughs> main news desk of the Sun. Wouldn't but, use that word. Uh, nobody was. Uh, nobody had any idea what was going on, and we spent the day rewriting the main story as events overtook events. Yeah. I mean, going from ten percent to twelve percent was a pretty serious move the interest uh, rate rise yes. with the first interest yeah. rate rise and that shook the markets obviously the market and government stocks had a very nasty day mm. and then when it was raised to 15% rather than going up sterling went down and rather than going down stock prices and the shot uh, up uh, they shot up because everybody knew at that point that Yo. the game was up I remember from my I was working in a bank then and I the only thing I really remember about that day is the second rate rise there was a moment of silence, I think, as everyone absorbed what the, the news that was coming across their screens. And then there was a sort of laughter. And everyone said, well, you know, that's the end of that then. Yeah. I think that <laughs> it was, was a very of, decisive moment, I yeah, felt. It was sort of widely, almost universal. You know, this is a joke. It was the end of the line. Well, so let's talk a bit about the fallout from the joke. I guess the first thing that becomes clear is that we're not going to go back into the ERM in a hurry. As Norman Lamont, still the Chancellor, has told the press that he's singing in the bath about leaving the ERM, which is not what you generally do. It's a matter of enormous regret. No, quite. I mean, also, there was no possibility of us going back in because the first question would be asked is, what is the rate? You know, nobody would be able to agree. Right. But in the first episode, we talked about why the government had originally wanted to go into the ERM. And the reason was they wanted some sort of anchor to their monetary policy, something which was independent of the mind of Mrs. Thatcher or John Major, which would force interest rates to rise in a credible way if inflation sparked up, which is why, of course, they joined the ERM. But the ERM has failed, so a new mechanism is needed, I guess. And here we talk to Duncan Weldon, economic historian, about the search and how they found a new monetary anchor in New Zealand, of all places. Yeah, Britain sort of stumbles almost by accident into a different sort of macroeconomic policy setup. Because we're out of ERM, we need something, we look around the world. The New Zealanders have recently started inflation targeting, 
seems like an idea worth copying. So, you know, we sort of follow the Reserve Bank in New Zealand in the picking an inflation target in 1992. Yes, that was Don Black at the New Zealand. He was a great guy. Um, You've met him. I've met him, yes. He's very sensible and had the opportunity to impose a sensible policy. Yeah. Uh, I think he was the forerunner of essentially the independent central bank right. philosophy. So this sort of gets around your sort of dilemma that you identified, Neil, which is you can never solve all the three three problems at the same time. You can't have your exchange rate in the right place, your interest rates in the right place for domestic monetary policy and whatever the third one was. What was well, the third one? Well, the two key ones are control of interest rates and control of your currency in an open economy. Right. You cannot do both simultaneously. Right. So when we move to what's called inflation targeting, Britain moves away from the idea of controlling its its exchange rate and focuses purely on setting the right rate for monetary conditions to hold down inflation. The question then is, who's going to be in charge of doing it? The UK, as we heard in an earlier episode, flirted with the idea, has flirted with the idea under Nigel Lawson, Chancellor in the 1980s, of giving the control of interest rates to the Bank of England. And Lamont now floats the idea again, but Major says no. The reason he does that, this is immediately after the ERM exit, is interesting. According to the biography of Jeremy Hayward, late Cabinet Secretary, Jeremy Hayward was, of course, Lamont's private secretary, and John Major was worried that to make the Bank of England independent might be seen as a sign that the UK wants to go into the euro. Yes, I think that that may have some truth in it, but I suspect the underlying question was no politician likes giving up power. And that's what it would mean. And Britain is very, very set in its ways. That For years and years, politicians have always rubber-stamped or set interest rate movements. And they continue to do so under, under the new inflation targeting regime. But there's one change, which is the Bank of England gives advice to the Chancellor, and that advice is made public. And which is quite a Which important, is a big step, I think. I think it's an important step, yes. It's the maximum amount of control that the politicians could bear to give up at that time. And increasingly, it gives the bank a big say in what, what happens. And as Jonathan Portes, who was a Treasury official at the time, said to us, it's become pretty clear where inflation targeting is headed. I mean, as I say, counterfactual history is difficult, but I think it's almost inconceivable that under any whoever was in power from 1997 to, to 2002 wouldn't have made the bank independent. It was, it was obviously coming, I think. And then when Tony Blair comes in in 1997, almost the first act of his chancellor, literally within days, isn't it, Gordon Brown, is to give the bank the power to set interest rates. It's an extraordinary moment. He raises interest rates on day two or day three and then says, over to you now. Yeah. And... People are so stunned by this, they yeah. can hardly believe it. Yeah. And actually, I suspect he could hardly believe it either, because two days later, he took away some of the powers that the bank had in terms of running the markets in mm. government debt. Mm. It was a very big moment, and it rather silenced the Conservatives, I think. So there's a technocratic fix at the end of all this for the ERM. Inflation targeting, independent bank in the long run, but what about the political fallout from the whole ERM catastrophe? The catastrophe is the word for the Tories, <laughs> because even though the next election was five years away, 
people didn't forget. And when it came to it, Major was comprehensively thumped in the polls and Tony Blair became Prime Minister. I think the total chaos on the day, and we heard in the last episode this sort of sense that there was nobody at home towards the end of Black Wednesday, after which the Conservatives don't win another election outright until 2015. Some legacy, I would say. Well done, Major. Yeah, quite. (laughs) Anyway, as for the personnel, well, Lamont loses his job pretty quickly. As you said, Max Hastings told him he would. Yeah, he lasted a few months. But really, he deserved to lose it, even though he now claims he never really liked the ERM and was only going along because he was obeying the Prime Minister's diktat. But if he felt that strongly about it, he should have resigned. Had he done so, of course, he would have been vindicated and probably now have a reputation which was a good deal higher than the one he actually has now. Where he clearly falls down is he doesn't have the courage of his own convictions politically to make a stand, and therefore he gets swept away with the, with the rest of them. <laughs> I mean, to be fair to him, I suspect he was the only voice in Cabinet who was uh, voicing serious doubts about the ERM, because if you look at the other big beasts there, like oh, Clark yeah. and... Yeah and Heseltine, they were very keen on further integration with Europe and this was a step in the right direction. You look back and it is fascinating that the people who essentially urged the ship to steam straight into the iceberg (laughs) survive with their political careers seemingly undamaged. And the one conspicuous casualty is the one person who was at least falteringly suggesting that they may turn the the wheel a few notches to starboard to get out of the way of the onrushing chunk of ice. I think we should also talk a bit about John Major here. I think he comes out of it really badly, all of this. Basically, he is the absolute architect of this policy failure. He's manoeuvring as we get closer and closer to disaster. It's clearly all about trying to spread the blame, wriggle out of responsibility himself. I think there's a judgment we want to reach about John Major, which is it's a short term. He spreads the blame and he survives. But in the long term, I think it's bad for his reputation. I don't think he really understood the magnitude of the decision to join the IRM in the first place. Mm. And he didn't have the understanding to see that it was bound to end in tears. And he brooked no opposition to his view that this was the right thing to do and that if it's not hurting, it's not working. And that was more or less what he was saying. And he was backed by the fact that he'd just won an election against the odds. So this reinforced his own conviction that this was the right thing to do. First, what you're saying is you're saying that Major is... He's a good example of politics coming into collision with economics, I think economic he, facts. I think, <laughs> and in the end, he basically thought he, could, I, he thought he could talk his way out of a crisis. But when the economic realities were so clearly ranged against him, he couldn't. I would say that the exit from the ERM marked a sea change in the basic attitude of the Conservative parliamentary party. We did talk to Duncan Weldon about this, and and I think that's right, and this is what he said. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly, you know, there's a sea change in the attitude to Europe in the Conservative Party, and that's partially a sort of Maastricht and the changing nature of the European community becoming the European Union, and it's partially this negative association with what happened on Black Wednesday. Really big sea change, you know, you're 
your younger generation of conservative MPs in the early 90s become distinctly more Eurosceptic in the 90s. And, you know, those are the people that go on to play a very important role in the party, you know, in the last decade or so, those Maastricht rebels and those Black Wednesday, big one. I think there is a sense as well that, you know, after Black Wednesday, it becomes a, almost a settled opinion amongst politicians in both major parties, amongst top treasury civil servants, and amongst Bank of England types, that a floating exchange rate is, is better for Britain. You know, we've had two really big falls in sterling in the last 20 years, you know, after 2008-9, again, after the 2016 Brexit referendum, perhaps a third one happening at the moment. But amidst all of those, there's now no serious voice in sort of, you know, technocratic British circles saying what we need is a fixed exchange rate. That raises a very interesting point, which is about the reaction to Black Wednesday. Because at the time, and you'll probably remember better than I do, there's a huge shock that this sort of George Soros and, a, you know, the gnomes of Zurich have suddenly reappeared. But this time they've administered a terrific beating to the Bank of England. And yes. how can this possibly be this, the right state of affairs that, that this great institution should be embarrassed like this? Well, because they were defending the indefensible is the, the, well, that's the, one point, the, yeah. the obvious reason. Although Soros is the man who is so most closely connected with the, the fiasco, mm. it's worth remembering at the time that the dollar was very weak. A pound bought almost two dollars which was clearly a rate which was absurdly out of kilter. And a lot of people, real investors, actual people who read the Telegraph, bought dollars. Other newspapers are available, listeners. (laughs) We urged the readers to buy dollars because it was so obvious that that rate was wrong. And the reason why it was wrong was that the dollar was weak against the Deutschmark, the pound was weak against the Deutschmark as well. So they were both going in the wrong direction. This was an opportunity that was clearly never going to recur. And that also added to the pressure on the Bank of England because the bank had to provide the Deutschmarks to satisfy the sellers of sterling and those buyers of Deutschmarks could easily convert them into dollars and get a very nice rate. I'm very impressed that the... (laughs) If the, if the readers of the telegraph were able, able to follow that advice, I think the other point to <laughs> I think the other point to make about this though is that if we think about why, as Duncan said, no one really believes in a fixed exchange rate after 1992 in the UK, it's partly because they've kind of suddenly twigged that Mrs. Thatcher might really be onto something that you can't buck the market in a world where the markets have become very, very deep oceans of capital, which can be assembled by people like George Soros, who can borrow billions and billions and billions. And the Bank of England is never going to have zillions of reserves to range against this enormous battering ram. And so basically, it's a kind of this idea that intervention can stop a barbarian style assault on the Bank of England is decided it's not going to happen. You know, we're not going to go there again. We're not going to make those mistakes again. Because the, the capital markets as a force in the world's economy had grown dramatically and have continued to do so. So what Britain learns from the ERM debacle is no more fixed currency regimes. And the Conservative Party basically 
forms a view about the whole question. And, and I think the Treasury as well, that integration into the single currency, which is still in theoretic possibility in 1992, the kind of bar goes up sharply against the idea of taking sterling out of the exchange rate mechanism, which is a relatively loose form of fixed currency and putting it into the kind of iron maiden of the euro. And I think that that sort of aversion which takes place after we leave the ARM means that by 1997, even though theoretically Blair is still talking about, he has hopes that we'll join the euro. Everyone in the establishment is now very sceptical whether I, that's a good idea. Well, I'm not sure I would entirely go along with that. I think okay. it was more that more, Blair was very keen. If he hadn't been sandbagged by Brown and Ed Balls with his five conditions to join the euro, which he knew at the time were incapable of being fulfilled, we might well have found ourselves in because uh, Blair was so dominant in terms of political clout, he could have said, well, you either join the euro or I'm going to fire you. And I think it betrayed Blair's lack of understanding of markets and economics, that he really thought that this was a political project which could be achieved. Can I just ask you one question? What were the five conditions? (laughs) (laughs) You can't. Okay, (laughs) we'll move on. (laughs) I can't remember. (laughs) And nor can anybody else. I think it was one about there had to be an R in the month. (laughs) So Britain doesn't want to join the euro, even though Tony Blair definitely does. But it's worth also talking about whether the EU might have thought they'd dodged a bullet when we dropped out of the ERM and had a second thoughts about ever joining their single currency project. Because, I mean, we talked to Jonathan Portes about, imagine what would have happened had we gone in in 1999 and then 2008, the great financial crunch, had happened when we were inside. And, and this is what he had to say. I think that the Eurozone, got lucky in the sense that it's quite possible that if we'd been in the euro in, in 2008, we would have had to withdraw. And that would have blown up the entire currency, right? I agree entirely with that comment. Yeah. So I think it is a kind of sliding doors moment where Britain basically could have gone in one direction in the autumn of 1992 and basically decides to go in a different way, which is into a much more semi-detached relationship with the EU, where we're not in a number of their major kind of signature projects, of which obviously the euro is the biggest one. That process leads to us being on the outside, if you like, of a more rapidly integrating central block that certainly starts to lead down the winding path that leads towards Brexit. Yes, semi-detached, I think, is a very good expression here, because over many centuries, that has essentially been... Britain's attitude towards Europe. Anyway, ironically, you know, despite all the political carnage after we leave the ERM, the UK economy then (laughs) thrives in a way which, you know, normally would help the government in power, but in this case doesn't. Interest rates come down and this remarkable recovery really starts, which lasts the whole way through the 1990s. The UK has sort of stumbled, as Duncan Weldon said, into a, a kind of macroeconomic framework, inflation targeting that really seems to work. Which means, of course, that the economy Tony Blair inherits in 1997 is vastly stronger than the one that Major started out with in 1990. And that, I think, leads to one last assessment to make, which is on the government's own handling of the crisis, which did very much to fix John Major and his merry men in, in public minds as being so useless. Here we've got Jonathan Portes explains to us the problem of 
how governments get trapped in their own brilliant policy ideas. Government as a whole has a real problem with scenario planning because your policy is by definition the right policy, right? Because if it weren't the right policy, we wouldn't be doing it. That's why we're doing it. It's because of the right policy. So how can it turn out to be the wrong policy? So the Treasury can make a plan for an asteroid hitting Newcastle because you know we don't have a policy on asteroids hitting Newcastle. It's unlikely to happen, but you know it might happen. And so it's reasonable to make a plan for it. We can't make a plan for the possibility that this policy, which is a wonderful policy and will succeed because it's our policy, will actually turn out to be a really crap policy that, that leads to total disaster. Um, so the Treasury had absolutely, you know, there was no plan at all for Black Wednesday. Nobody had done any contingency planning, any wargaming. There wasn't some sort of something to be pulled off the shelf or any of that. Um, And that's partly one of the reasons why it was such a complete mess in the days leading up to it and the day itself, because there was no plan at all. I think that's a real insight into the, the way governments actually do work, that you are not allowed to consider things which are banned or outlawed in the in the manifesto you cannot as a civil servant have a plan b if the manifesto says here is plan a and this is what we're going to do yeah that exposes a really central weakness in our political governance yeah it's interesting though isn't it because if you think about the two prime ministers who most obviously have fallen into this trap of having a brilliant idea which then fails one obviously being John Major with the ERM. The other, I would say, would be David Cameron with his renegotiation of terms of membership of the EU, where he refuses to countenance any possible scenario planning into what might happen if the public doesn't agree with him. And in both those cases, the political price paid by the leader who got caught out was very high. Major basically gets totally swept away. Cameron has to leave Downing Street in his socks the following morning pretty much after the referendum so you'd think that there is quite a strong political incentive to try to avoid getting caught in these awful situations i suppose it's because if there is a plan b being hatched as a contingency the political correspondents who are have got their teeth well into the side of the uh, political machine Mm. would say ah did you realise that there's a contingency plan for, I don't know, nuclear disarmament or variable yeah. rates of income tax in Scotland and England or yeah. you know, something which is off the scale as far as the government is concerned, but is a possibility? The reality is, as a politician, you do not want to get yourself, box yourself in to a vulnerable position where the only possible salvation you have is other people. And in the case of both uh, Cameron and Major, the other people were probably the Germans <laughs> have to be relied on to pull your chestnuts out of the fire because I think you find that quite obviously those other people often have their own interests which <laughs> don't square with your political ones. So that's it for Black Wednesday. I think it's a major watershed. Britain solves its monetary dilemma, sets a firm mandate. 2% inflation is the limit. Where are we now? Just under 10 <laughs> okay, as so, we speak. Oh, so, yes. And we've got a bit of a sterling crisis as well. But yes. fortunately, we're not in a fixed currency regime. That's the main thing. 
quite. So there's no question of trying to defend the pound's rate against anything else, the euro or the dollar. The inflation regime worked pretty well during the benign decade after the financial crisis of 2008 to the point where people got very complacent about it Mm. and people believed that inflation was a problem of the past Mm. and of course in the UK economy it never is a problem of the past and we see now what can happen and how quickly things can get very bad indeed and also it shows the limits of giving the Bank of England independence so-called because it is quite clear that there are severe limits as to what the bank can really do in terms of raising interest rates. So hang on, uh, heresy alert. Are you suggesting we go back to political setting of interest rates? I don't think you can ever get away from it in reality. Mm. I think you can give the bank a considerable degree of independence, and in the normal way, it can act independently and raise interest rates, because that is the acid test always. Every politician likes to cut interest rates and every politician hates raising them. Mm. But looking at the way the Bank of England has behaved in the last year or so, they completely failed to see the inflation problems coming. Either they were asleep at the switch or they were got at by the politicians and persuaded somehow to keep interest rates at the absurdly low levels that we got used to. Well, the one lesson from 1992 is you can't ignore economic realities forever. Quite. <laughs> so, let's hope, so let's, hope. <laughs> let's hope that the Prime Minister and the Governor of the Bank between them have grasped this truth. Yeah, amen to that. <laughs> That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Editing and production is by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. Join us again next week.